This is the Stories of Transformation podcast, and I'm your host, Bakhtar Shahadi. Each week, I dive into deep conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique stories about how they overcame hardship, learned their craft, and found their purpose. These conversations are meant to expand perspectives and share voices of diverse identities. What's the difference between wisdom and intellect? What's the difference between ethnic identity and national identity? What does it mean to be an American? And what are the challenges as being perceived as the other? These are some of the questions that Abdul El Said and I follow in this episode of Stories of Transformation. Abdul El Said is an American politician, former public health professor, medical doctor, and civil servant. In 2018, he ran for governor of the state of Michigan and placed second. In 2020, he served on the Joe Biden-Bernie Sanders Unity Task Force on Healthcare, and he just published his latest book entitled Medicare for All, A Citizen's Guide. This book aims to take a unique approach in exploring the idea of universal healthcare in America, which we will discuss in this conversation. These are just some of the many accolades that Abdul has accomplished thus far in his life. And with that said, he has a promising future in politics. And for that reason, I'd like to essentially share his message to get an understanding of where he's going to go and what he wants to do with his life. I found this conversation with Abdul El Said to be enlightening, authentic, and engaging, which I hope you do too. As always, feel free to share this conversation far and wide, and please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. So, without further delay, I bring you Abdul El Said. Abdul El Said, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Thank you so much for having me. I am grateful. I am healthy. My family is healthy. And, um, you know, in this moment, that's something that I think all of us who are that privileged ought to take stock of. So, uh, yeah, grateful to be with you. Well, I appreciate you starting off by uh, expressing your gratitude. It's always welcome here. Abdul, I'd like to talk to you about your journey, your family story, the body of your work, your new book, your run for governor in Michigan. But what I'd like to do to kind of start all that off is by asking you, in your own words, how do you kind of define who you are? The definition that I'd say is most encapsulating of how I try to move in the world is as my grandmother's grandson. She was the wisest, most intelligent human being I've ever met in my life, but she never got to go to school. In that respect, she is a stunning contrast between capacity and opportunity that we don't tend to see as much in high privilege contexts like the one that I, I tend to occupy. I would spend a lot of my summers with her. She lost two of the infants that she gave birth to of the eight that she ultimately gave birth to. And she had this just ability to communicate ideas that is still unparalleled to me. I, I remember she used to you know, sit all of our cousins down and she'd tell these stories. and. Um, the ability to have you sort of live in that story just, you know, through the sort of oral tradition of storytelling was magical, you know, better than any movie I've ever watched. And so that, and, and then she'd teach you these lessons. I mean, I remember when I was in Egypt, she'd point to one of my cousins and say, that one's smarter than you. Point to another one and say, that one's, you know, taller and better looking than you. Point to a third one say, that one's more athletic than you. That one's better person and kinder and nicer than you. To the point where, you know, I'd, I'd sort of have myself thinking, I wonder what I've got going on for me. And she said, well, you know, you've got opportunities. And, uh, and, and that's, that's maybe the most important thing. And um, right. so I try and live in my grandmother's lessons and remind myself that you know, opportunities are a very different thing than capacity. 
There are millions of people in the world with capacity, millions with opportunity, and rarely do those things overlap perfectly. And I think not just the recognition of one's opportunities, but the responsibility to leverage one's opportunities in service of people who don't have them. That's what I try and bring to my work every day. And in that respect, you know, I'm proud to be my, my grandmother's grandson. She's someone who never had an article written about her or, you know, never wrote a book or never was featured. But she's someone who was a profoundly immense human being to all of the people that she got to touch. And I'm one of them and I'm grateful for that. Oh, that's a wonderful um, commemoration of your grandmother. Thank you for sharing that. So, Abdul, I'm curious to know what's surfacing for me now is just to kind of unpack that thought is, what's the difference in your mind between intellect and wisdom? Hmm. How would you go about explaining that to, to your daughter, for example? I think wisdom is the kind of deep learning that comes from applying intellect to experience. Intellect is, is just a tool. It's a probe. And I think it can help us if we choose to allow it to help us to make sense of what we're seeing and experiencing in the world. But the choice to imprint it and to allow it to pattern the way that you engage with the world in the future, I think that's wisdom. And coupled in that or implicit in that is that there is a level of patience that has to come with one's experience, the ability to have the long view on the world and the ability to appreciate that not all that matters will, will happen today. And sometimes the outcomes that you think you want aren't the outcomes that are best for you or the people around you. And most of the time, you're not the most important actor in this fear of, of happenings in the world. And if, if you can center the people that matter most, and if you can appreciate that actions have consequences both now and in the long term, and you can discipline yourself to have the patience to see how it all ends up, you know, I think that's wisdom. Right. I think that's right. I kind of think of it too as one's relationship with time, right? So what's interesting is people take actions in some sense, based on what they want and what they need. And understanding the difference is, in some sense, wisdom. And what I mean to say is, people that think in the short term act for the moment, act in the moment, which can be good, but can also be completely detrimental if you give in to your impulses. But as a matter of actions and understanding the implications of one's actions, I think that in itself is wisdom. So it's, it's one's relationship to now versus later if that makes any sense. Mm, that's powerful. It's, it's almost uh, what do I want now versus what matters most? Exactly. Exactly. So Abdul, I'd like to kind of dig into your identity in terms of how you kind of see yourself in the world and you know your upbringing, how that kind of shaped and formed who you are today in terms of the work that you do. Yeah. My life has been the set of beautiful contrasts that I'm really grateful for that I've come to appreciate not everybody gets to live in. You know, on the one hand, I'm the, the son of immigrants and, you know, profoundly, you know, Egyptian and Muslim in my identities. And at the same time, you know, my stepmother who raised me is a daughter of the American Revolution, and I am profoundly uh, an American. And, you know, having lived in abroad, I come to appreciate that in those experiences. The notion of being both of a place, but also not conditioned as of that place, I think forces you or allows you to see the world from multiple viewpoints and to have a different perspective on the same set of 
realities. And I think that informs a, I hope, a permissiveness to appreciate that others can see it a different way. Um, and I think there's an empathy that one has to have first and foremost for oneself because it's hard to straddle two different viewpoints on the same thing. And I think out of that, an empathy that comes for others and an appreciation for being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes and ask, how do they see it and why? I think the counterpositive of that is a frustration that comes with sometimes the inability for folks to see it a different way because they haven't necessarily had to. And as someone who has had to, uh, whether it's, you know, as a person of color in America or an American abroad, or it's as someone who inhabits a particular ethnic and, and religious identity, but even among people who share those ethnic and religious identities has been seen as an other, sort of a perpetual other everywhere I go. There is that level of appreciation for, you know, the need to see it differently. And um, that's, again, something I'm really profoundly grateful for. But whether it was in the United States, here, you know, I'm known by, or at least the first thing that hits people about me is my ethnic and faith identities, right? My name is Abdurrahman Muhammad Sayyid. I'm clearly ethnically other. But then, you know, in the summers when I'd go to Egypt, it was whether it was the way I walked or the way I presented myself, I was the American, right? And it's funny, there's a moment where you you sort of throw your hands up and say, look, can I just be the American in America and the Egyptian in Egypt? Like, I, you know, that'd be amazing. But that's not that's not the hand that um, that being an other deals you. And I think it, it forces in you a level of uh, empathy and appreciation for what it means to be another and the ability to to see it in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, I can completely empathize. Uh, I hail from Afghanistan, and here I was always othered, in particular as it pertains to our background as Muslim Americans in 9-11. But then when I went back to Afghanistan as a combat interpreter, I wasn't Afghan enough. I wasn't Muslim enough. Mm. And so I think the way you kind of laid that out is, is really beautiful in terms of having the empathy to realize that sometimes they may not understand to the same level in which you may do. Mm -hmm. But to get there, I think, takes so many cuts, right? Because growing up in your lived experience as a young person, I think it's probably fair to say that all we want to do is fit in wherever we are. Mm. All we want to do is not be seen as somebody who's different. It's a really interesting thing in terms of the immigrant experience. I'm not sure if this resonates with you, but it wasn't where my, you know, my parents never really taught me to be unique, to stand out, to say the things that need to be said. It was more of a don't stand out. Don't let people see you because if you do, quite literally could be the detriment of you. Mm -hmm. And I share this with you because their mental framing of their sense of identity in Afghanistan was very much that. So they taught me what they knew. And so I'm not sure if that resonates with you, but I found, I find this to be something commonplace with many immigrants. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. What you're speaking to is this difference in how we're taught to engage with collectivity and individualism across different cultures. You know, in America, the metaphor is that the strongest eat first, right? And so you want to stand out, you want to, you know, be an individual. Whereas there's a Chinese metaphor, I believe it is, that, that says the tallest blade of grass is the first to get cut. Exactly. Those are, you know, very opposite metaphors and suggest very different things. And I think, you know, if you don't come with a multiplicity of backgrounds that are themselves on opposing sides of this divide, there's sort of a way to be. But, you know, when, when you're sort of taught not to be too much an individual, but also taught to be an individual, you get real confusing real quick. 
What I, I think, came to appreciate in having this juxtaposition in my own household was that I was always going to stand out. And the question is, for what? And I guess what I tried to do was to bring with me a level of a focus on the things that I thought were important and to use those, I hope, as a screen to be able to say the things that need to be said. And that's the that's sort of like the American in me. And so it's, all right, so I'm going to stand out and, and for what and how, and what am I going to use that for? And that's the thing is that like, I think there's a way to stand out for you. I think there's more a way to stand out as an advocate for others. And that's always what I've tried to, to do and say, to be the one who stands out on for the purpose, right, of advancing all of those who don't have the time, space, uh, or privilege to speak for themselves. Abdul, what I'd like to do now is have you share the story about the first time that you met Bill Clinton and how that subsequently changed your life. And then also, if you could dig into what the presidency of Barack Obama did for you and what that worked in you and the impact that it made on you. Yeah. You know, I had no uh, intention ever of running for office. Uh, I thought, you know, that was entirely off limits to me as somebody with an 11 letter first name uh, that, you know, after 9-11 was completely associated with a particular kind of identity. And I was selected to be the student speaker. I was the, the valedictorian of my college at the University of Michigan and was still selected to give the student commencement speech in 2007. Uh, and the main speaker who, you know, anyone went to actually go listen to that day was was President Clinton. And um, I think the only way I got my parents to actually go was that Clinton was speaking, not that I was speaking, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but um, I gave my speech. I'll be honest with you. I worked harder on that speech than I think I've ever worked on anything. In fact, the day of, I decided to jettison my notes because I'd given it so many times. And I knew that I kept looking back at my notes and they were serving more as an impediment than, a, than an actual crutch. So I just decided not to give it, to give it from my mind and, you know, whatever happened, happened. And I gave my speech and then President Clinton gave his speech. And in the middle of his speech, he, he said some really nice things about me in his speech. And, um, you know, it was the first time my parents clapped. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> you know, after the speech, you can imagine all of the university higher ups were in a line to speak with the, the former president. And, you know, I wanted to go see my family. And, and so I, I thought, you know, maybe I'll just skip out and go and I don't want to bother the man. So I start walking out and I get a, a tap on my shoulder and uh, it's Bill Clinton. For folks who haven't met Bill Clinton, he he has this rare political gift of being able to completely focus in on you and, and almost like look into your soul. And so Bill Clinton starts to look into my soul and um, you know, he, he asked me, son, why are you going to medical school? The first thing that comes to my mind is I'm brown and Muslim and that's just what we do. But I didn't say that. I said, look, I, I love people. I love science. And this is how I want to serve. And he said, you know, you've got a rare gift for communicating. And maybe someday you'll run for office. And I looked at him for a second. I said, Mr. President, that's really nice of you to say. But I don't know if you saw my first name. There are 11 letters in my first name. At that point, we both started chuckling. He didn't even deny it. He's like, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> the crazy thing is that was 2007. And in 2008, President Barack Hussein Obama was elected. And it was the first time that I ever saw myself in a politician. Now, you know, I've got a lot of political differences with former President Obama, as I do with former President Clinton. Um, I don't agree with a lot of what they perpetrated both here and abroad, but 
I'm grateful for the fact that he had the courage to pursue a career that I'm sure a lot of people told him he could not by the virtue of his name, by the virtue of the color of his skin, by the virtue of where his family comes from. And 10 years later, I would go on and run for office. Now, the truth of representation, I think, is buried somewhere in that story, which is that if you cannot see yourself represented in any real way, it's very hard to imagine yourself in a place where uh, you're, you're doing a particular thing. And you know, I'm sure for President Obama, watching people like Shirley Chisholm, watching people like Jesse Jackson run for office, even if they lost, mattered. And I'll be honest with you, I ran and I didn't win my race. I'm grateful and fortunate that our race got a lot of attention. And in large part, for me, the most important part of that was that there is a generation of young people who saw this young guy with an extremely Muslim name running for office and doing so on his principles, right? And I hope that there's a whole generation of people who saw me do that, who saw people like Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and so many others um, at so many levels doing that, that feel empowered to be able to aspire to the ideal of leadership in a democratic society, which is to, to run for office. And so those things matter. And I think we're constantly deciding what gifts we want to pass on to the next generation. But the most important of them are what we unlock in them about what they are and who they are and what that means for this place that we live in. This America, it's a choice. It's, it's being made in the collective. It emerges out of the choices that we all make about how to interpret those ideals on which it was founded and how we hold her accountable. And our choices about whether or not to do that thing shape the America that, uh, that our kids and our grandkids will inherit. And our hope is that it is an America where regardless of where their families came from and the color of their skin and how they pray, who they love, that it's an America that belongs to them too. And my hope is that, you know, running was a bit of an intervention to make that America just a little bit more inclusive of them. It speaks to the idea that, you know, America, I think people in some sense have forgotten this, Abdul, but America should be unified based on its diversity, right? And in some sense, that's the thing that makes America special, right? If you go to other countries, I think this is something that's really important to kind of mention, other European countries, countries in the Far East, other developed countries, people as immigrants that go to those countries have a much more difficult time becoming included and finding a sense of home and belonging. But the America that we kind of understand today, at least the foundations of this country, were to separate themselves from that. The interesting thing that I didn't quite appreciate when I lived in the UK is that there is no such thing as an American ethnicity unless you are a Native American. Those are the only folks who say, I'm ethnically American, right? Everyone else can be nationally American. Your nationality is American, but your ethnicity is something else, right? And that point, the fact that there's a difference between the ethnic identity of Americans and the national identity of Americans is a uniquely American thing. You go to the UK, right? I remember sitting down and talking to a friend of mine who is of Algerian descent, but he is a UK national. And he said, I'm not British, right? Because British means that you are ethnically British. There are ethnically British people. In fact, a lot of people in your country are ethnically British. But I am Algerian and I am a UK national. And that point, right, it matters a lot because we are a national identity founded out of so many different ethnic identities. And we have to choose to be American, right? We have to choose to engage with that. And that doesn't mean, right, assimilating. It doesn't mean losing our ethnic identities or losing our faith identities or jettisoning some aspect of, of who we believe ourselves to be. 
But that means deciding that we are a part of this country, that we have a stake in our democracy and that uh, we have a stake in the choices that our democracy makes. And it means deciding that just like we don't want anyone to impinge on our right to be who we are, we don't impinge on other people's rights to be who they are. And, and that to me is that that balance is what in the essence at the core is what it means to be an American. And so to uphold a certain set of civic values while maintaining a certain personal set of values, whichever they are, wherever they come from, and however you interpret them against the backdrop of this space that that offers so many different ways of being or not, right? And that is a choice, just like our, our civic identity is a choice. And the question is, what choice do we make? And, and how do we manifest that in the world? I'd like to pivot here, Abdul, and talk to you about what it was like for you as a trained epidemiologist to kind of occupy the space and time of 2020. What was that like for you to kind of understand the country that you were born into was going through? And then how did that change you specifically? We can talk about a hundred different ways in which it changed the United States, but I'm curious to know how it changed you and your understanding of, you know, your place in the world. Hmm. It was hard for me to interpret 2020 outside of the context of 2018. You know, I, I ran for governor because I believed that there were a set of responsibilities to take on before there was ever an epidemic. And in, in some respects, right, there was a, a moment of just sort of looking up into the sky and being like, God, so you mean had I won my race, I would be an epidemiologist leading through a pandemic. Yeah, wow. And there is a level of like a sense of responsibility to that, right, which is to say, you know, I, I think our state governor did a fine job with the pandemic, but I trained for this, right? I'd have been the only governor in the country who'd ever run an epidemic response before becoming governor. And um, there is a sense of, of asking, what did I do wrong in my race? And, you know, and feeling almost responsible for not being out there doing that work. And obviously in the backdrop, recognizing that I'm going to do everything I can to get great information out to people. and. I remember the first three months of that pandemic were just whirlwind. We were living with my in-laws. Uh, you know, we had a two-year-old at that point, and you know, the only way that we were going to be able to care for her and work was if we bubbled up and moved in with my in-laws. So we we're living, working out of the basement. It was just a whirlwind of interviews and podcasts and television and all of it, trying to you know to make sense and help people make sense of the pandemic. And, and that work mattered. But the whole time, I felt like instead of being a general in the war, I was uh, covering the war from the press box. I'll be honest with you, coming out of that, there was a level of just sort of self-blaming, of just saying, look, you know, you should be doing more, you should be doing more, that I had to make peace with. Just recognizing that in the end wasn't the circumstance that I was in, and my job was to do the most with the circumstance that I was in. And so I had to learn how to let go of a sense of responsibility that, you know, ultimately I was not responsible for. You know, I did my best and um, that was a circumstance I was in, but I was not a health commissioner. I was not a governor. I was working toward um, helping people make sense of that. And my job was to do the best I could with the circumstances that I was in. And I, I think there was a level of just of just peacemaking that I think is, has been really important for me personally. The other side of it is in 2020, before March 15th, I took 35 flights between January 1st and March 15th. And I have not been on an airplane since. And that also means that I'm extremely present in the life of my daughter and the life of my wife. And I think that has fundamentally changed the way that I think about what matters. 
And it's not to say that I didn't think that my being a father and being a husband mattered, but to say that there is a added level of presence that comes with being present. And I'm really grateful for that. And at the same time, all of this on the backdrop of watching people die and suffer, particularly the imbalance and the inequities that I'd spent so much of my career talking about manifesting in this really profound way and trying to do my best to correct the narrative around that and to speak about what the structural circumstance that led to this are and make sure that even coming out of this, that the normal that we pursue is not the normal that we came out of because that normal was the normal that put us into the situation in the first place. So it was a whirlwind of personal emotion and a sense of a set of responsibilities and a hope to fulfill them. And in the end, you know, there's just a profound gratitude of knowing that you know, I'm really one of the privileged ones. And, um, you know, as frustrating as I found the incapacity to do the full set of work that I wanted to do was, it doesn't even touch the frustration that so many people have experienced having lost their loved ones and um, lost their livelihoods. And so that is the overwhelming sort of background sensation of it all. The thing that's surfacing for me in terms of how you express your sense of gratitude for, for what you kind of have is this idea of not just being a father with children, but it's about being a father to your children and this idea of presence, right? Mm. Uh, quite literally being there in those first five years, which are just the most important for a child mm -hmm. because you're the framework for what they understand of the world. And so maybe that's, that kind of speaks to what you're what you're kind of getting at in terms of, wow, this, this role that you're occupying quite literally is one of the most important roles that you could possibly occupy. Yeah, that's exactly right. My, my wife one time, she's, she's really good at putting me in my place, uh, and I'm really grateful for that. We were in Chicago uh, before the pandemic. It was probably late 2018, just after the race. And yeah, you know, most of the time when I travel to speak, you know, my family doesn't usually come, but we, we've got a lot of good friends in Chicago and family in Chicago. And so she came along and Emily, my daughter, was about one year old at the time. And uh, when I stood up to speak at the lectern, Emily kept screaming, Baba, Baba, Baba. And I, 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 you know, at some, at some point I had to stop, look at her and acknowledge her. And, you know, it was a cute moment. Everybody laughed about it. And afterwards, my wife looks at me and says, just make sure that's not the only way she ever knows you. And it was a really powerful reminder that whatever your broader sense of your responsibilities are, you can't forget that, you know, you're the only person who can be your child's parent. And that is a set of fleeting responsibilities that if you miss, you miss. And I also, you know, the cost of running was that I missed her first eight months. I just completely missed them. I missed her first word. I missed her first crawl. Um, I missed the first time she ate mangoes. I missed all those things. I saw them on video. And um, there is a level of, uh, I think, regrets that I have about that. And I, you know, I hope that I can make it up. But, you know, that those are things that you don't get back. And so, you know, I, I think thinking forward, this moment has really um, forced me to step back and take stock of what matters. And I, I think at some point I'll probably be back out on the campaign trail. But I hope it's after having sort of spent a really good amount of time being a good dad and building a relationship with my daughter and whomever else uh, is yet to come in a way that uh, allows me to maintain a bridge to those moments and that relationship 
And so that, you know, my kid does know me uh, in a way that's different than what they might see on TV or see up at a lectern. Yeah, that's wonderful, man. Thank you for sharing that. So, Abdul, let's, let's get into your latest book, Medicare for All, A Citizen's Guide. Help us understand what the book's all about and what's possible as a matter of universal health care. So most of us who've heard the words Medicare for All have heard them in a political context, at a debate or on television in a, in a one-minute response to a question from a, a news anchor. And that's not where we thought the actual discussion about Medicare for All should sit. Healthcare is personal for all of us. Every single one of us has a body and a mind, and that body or mind may need care at some point. And when that happens, the brokenness of the system in abstract terms becomes very real and very specific. And so what we wanted to do with this book was take the conversation about Medicare for All back out of the political arena and situate it around the kitchen table in a discussion about how that broken system reaches its arms into our lives and the consequences it has. And ultimately, it's impossible not to think about health reform as a political project. But rather than having a reform founded in politics, we want politics founded in reform. And that means that we have to situate it personally uh, to make that personal political and to continue to organize. And in a lot of ways, our hope with this book was to break down the system, to, to let some sunshine in, to explain in clear terms how the system works, why it works in the way it does. And, you know, there's a misnomer that the system doesn't work. That's not true. It actually works very well. It just doesn't work to provide healthcare. It works to provide profits for major corporations. That's how it works. And so what does that mean then if you are one of those patients who's being profiteered off of by a system of large corporations intent upon profiteering off your body? And, and that's our goal uh, with this book, to, to break that down and to speak to how the project of Medicare for All would map to solving those problems. What a single government health insurance plan would mean for reducing the prices that exclude so many folks and extract support from so many others. What it would mean for addressing the overhead and the absurd levels of waste in our system. What it would mean for investing in a public health infrastructure that actually prevented us from getting sick in the first place rather than waiting for us to get sick and then charging us far more than we could afford to heal us. That's what we wanted to do with this book. Mm -hmm. That's great. So Abdul, what was it like for you in your medical training, and particularly your medical training abroad, when you would tell people that health insurance and healthcare in the United States was attached to employment? How did that land with people? And what was it like to navigate that conversation? You know, it's interesting, right? Because it's not just that people are like, oh, well, that's weird. They're like, that's crazy. And um, that's because it is, it's crazy. If you've ever had it a different way, then you appreciate just how crazy that really is. And, and that's that's the response. I mean, I don't know if your listeners remember way back when <laughs> to the uh, Meghan Markle and, and Prince Harry interview, because UK audiences responded more profoundly to the pharmaceutical ads that they watched in the commercial breaks rather than to anything that, that Meghan or Harry said. And it's that astounding to people. But the challenge with ubiquity and you know, our healthcare systems, all most of us really know, is that it comes normal really fast. And, and normal is a very powerful thing, right? Getting back to this point that we made about parenting, the one thing that I think every parent can do is set what normal is. You set the thermostat. Everything else, you know, the world changes, but you get to set what normal is. And that's what the power of parenting is. And it's the same thing with our experience here. The normal has been set to this like 
wacky space. It's like somebody, you know, you only ever lived in a house where somebody set the thermostat to 89. And you're just like, I guess it's just always hot and we're just always sweaty, right? Except for being like, you know, somebody come and change the thermostat down. You're like, wow, that's so much more comfortable. But it's only in having stepped out of that for a second and appreciating that there's another normal that is possible that you come to appreciate what that is. And if you've never lived outside of that, you don't really realize that your thermostat's set to 89. And I think this folds back into the way we started our conversation, Abdul, where you know, your sense of identity is very much about not only hailing from, from different lands, but being exposed to different types of people who have different ways of living and seeing the world in very different ways. So it creates this idea of, wait a second, this isn't the only way that, can, that we can live. There are other options, right? That's right. That's right. And, that, and that's the thing is that you, when you appreciate that your normal isn't the normal, then at some point you have to start asking, what is the best normal? And what does my normal, what is the cost of my normal for other people's normal? And that's the question I want more people asking is like, what is the cost of my normal for everyone else's normal? Because for a lot of people who can afford health insurance uh, or who make money off of the system as it stands, what is your normal costing other people? And what does it mean for their normal? And I think if we ask that question a little bit more uh, we might just have a, a more just, equitable, and, and moral world. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. So, Abdul, as we kind of come to a close here, how would you go about answering the question, what is your message for the world? Hmm. I don't know if it would be my message. It would probably be more my, my Teta's message, which is that if you have opportunity, the question is, what are you doing to leverage that opportunity for folks who don't have it? Privilege begets privilege in this world. And the question is, are you leveraging your privilege for people who already have it or people who don't? I reflect quite a bit on from my own faith practice is that at some point I'm not going to be here anymore in, in, in spirit or in body. And the question of my life, you know, when the book closes on my life, what will have it have been spent doing? And I, I think that that reflection on mortality gives you life in some real way, right? It helps you to appreciate that it, because life is a finite thing, the responsibility to live it for all it's worth, both in joy and beauty but also in purpose and in responsibility. I think that's deeply empowering. And I, I hope that more folks think about that, right? Because I, I think that the challenge with being young sometimes is the notion that life is going to continue. But talk to somebody who watched someone pass in their 30s and 40s, right? What is young at the end of the day? So, you know, we get, we get every day that we have and what are we spending it doing? Yeah, that's beautiful. Abdul, thank you for your time and uh, thank you for being the light in the darkness, my friend. That's kind of you to say, uh, I really appreciate you having me and thank you for illuminating conversations and sharing uh, your platform and your space to build them out. Thank you, sir. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, please share it far and wide. This podcast is made possible by a superb group of individuals. Specifically, this podcast was produced by Joe Ganjemi. Digital marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi and theme music by Kais Esar. You can find us online via Stories of Transformation on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we have an online community named the Stories of Transformation Group. In this group, we discuss topics related to the human condition. Please join us. We'd love your engagement. Thank you for your support, and see you next time.